0: Andy, welcome back. Thank you. This will be the third time you've been on to talk about where Alaska is with COVID-19. Yeah. The last time we talked was back on April 27th. And at that point, Alaska had been quarantining for over a month. And the Anchorage municipality was beginning to open back up again.
1: So we were like moving into phase two then, right? Or
0: I think something like that. Yeah.
1: Something like that.
0: That was over two months ago now. What has changed since then? And do we know anything now that we didn't know then?
1: First of all, um, what's changed is that it's summer now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that the summer's been amazing, like you and I were talking about. Um, I I think that's been probably a mental lifesaver for everyone around here. You know, we've had sunny days and some rainy days that keep, the trails and everything else in good shape and tons of people are getting outside. Um, I mean, it's been amazing to see all aspects of Anchorage of the Anchorage community using the outdoors. Mm -hmm. I feel like the hunker down pushed everyone into the outdoor space. And at first I, I felt like amongst the normal trail user crew, there were some complaints about that, but I, I just think it's just amazing to see All aspects of the Anchorage community get outdoors and be enjoying it. It's super cool. And I hope that that's something that just sticks with our community um, because it's healthy for all of us. Um, In terms of, so I'm an ER doc um, and I focus on treatment. In terms of what we learned for treatment early on with COVID, especially as there were. You know specific locales, initially China, then Italy, then New York, the early on response to people in respiratory distress from COVID was to intubate them early and then try to support them on ventilators as their lungs healed, and there's been a major learning curve there. Fortunately, we haven't had a huge amount of cases here, and so that learning curve didn't get learned on our patients like it did in other places. Um, because the outcomes early on were very poor and anyone who was sick enough to be intubated and what it turns out is that um, I mean intubation is really hard on a body the brain and lungs and heart aren't all talking to each other and coordinating how much someone's breathing and um, and we we regulate that with our blood chemistry and our heart rate and we monitor our oxygen through chemoreceptors and we monitor our carbon dioxide level through chemoreceptors and our kidneys are monitoring our bicarbonate levels. And, and that's keeping our acid base at a certain point, And that actually is a big part of what drives our breathing. And all that feedback is incredible. Um, and you take the body's ability to do that away and manage it, you know, with a ventilator. And uh, there are a, a lot can go wrong, um, including the volume of air that you're pushing into sick lungs. Um, sick lungs aren't very compliant, and the tissue is not healthy. And uh, lungs get damaged on ventilators. And there's been a ton of learning over the years of of how to manage that. And and I think ICU doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists are incredible at doing it. Um, but it's still hard on the lungs. And the other thing that we do to people is we have them on their back and they're not moving and they're sedated. And that uh, is not natural for us. And our change in position has a huge effect on both the capacity of our lungs and um, what parts of our lungs are more open or more compressed and weight sitting on them and where we're doing that oxygen transfer And so when you're sleeping, you're rolling and changing position all the time for a number of reasons. And one of them is that it it keeps your respiratory status better. Hmm. And when somebody's in the ICU in a hospital on a vent, they're on their back. So, uh, and then when when you're having trouble ventilating people, sometimes they'll prone them, they'll put them on their front. Well, with COVID being a combination of some really sick lungs, as well as, you know, now we know that COVID gets pretty much everywhere in the body and, and can wreak havoc all over, but um, with the lungs being pretty sick and super inflamed and the patients that get really sick. Um, being intubated turns out to be really hard on those patients too. And it wasn't, I mean, it may be where a patient has to be and you can hopefully bridge them back to being healthy enough to get off the ventilator. But the outcomes of people that are put on ventilators, even in places where the nursing and doctor and respiratory therapist ratios are good, the outcomes are still really bad and worse than most other diseases. Um, And then you combine that with a place that's overwhelmed like say New York City and suddenly your doctor ratios and nursing ratios and RT ratios are way worse than normal. And so these people aren't getting all the other care they need in addition to the adjustments to the ventilator and your outcomes are dismal. So with a big change in COVID was a move from early intubation to delayed intubation. And a factor in that has been twofold. One is there was more and more use of something called high flow nasal cannula, which is um, warm, humidified air through kind of a large volume nasal prongs, kind of like what you see on the ER shows, anyone who comes into the ER with chest pain, they get these nasal prongs thrown to their nose and some extra oxygen, mm-hmm. which actually doesn't turn out to help them, but it's what we do. And um, this is a higher volume version of that and it really kind of flushes out gases and you can adjust the oxygen level because we we don't want to over oxygenate people, it's actually not good for them. Um, but you are you are actually helping with some pressure ventilate the lungs but not a kind of pressure like with intubation that can be more damaging to sick lungs. We use that a lot more that got, um, and we use something called CPAP and BiPAP, which is a a full pressurized mask. There was a lot of concern early on about aerosolizing the virus when you use those. And so when PPE was short and in places where PPE was short, there was hesitance to use those modalities. And that was part of the push towards intubation. And now that we've all got more comfortable with what ppe do we need and having enough ppe um, those modalities have been used a lot more and they've they've been shown to to save a lot of people that would have been innovated before and been able to get their oxygen levels up and keep their lungs happier and help these people recover so we now use non-invasive that's called non-invasive ventilate- ventilation um, but non-invasive would be like high flow nasal cannula and the true non-invasive is the pressurized mass the cpap or bipap Um, And that's been combined with both for intubated patients and awake patients, having them change position has also been key. These, the COVID lungs are are a lot like something called acute respiratory distress syndrome. And there's a lot of inflammation and fluids in the lungs that shouldn't be there. And if you are moving people around, that distribution changes and different areas of the lung can be used for oxygenation. And it it, um, keeps the damage to the lungs less. The other thing that seems to happen with COVID is, is this concept of happy hypoxics. And so people that don't realize that their oxygen saturation is low and it's not enough to keep their brain and their heart and their kidneys and their liver happy. But for some reason, the chemoreceptors aren't noticing it. They're not feeling it. And there's a lot of patients who come in with a low oxygen saturation that actually look pretty good. And at first, our response is we need to fix that. And to some degree, with the people that are really low, you do need to fix that some so that the brain and the heart and all the other organs are happy. Um, But you don't need normal levels all the time. And so there's been a little more um, like permissive low oxygen level that um, has seemed to, again, avoid damaging lungs further, but help these people enough so that they can start to get better. there's been a lot of talk, so away from the lungs, other organs, there's been a ton of talk about inflammation of the blood vessels and endothelial, which is the lining of the blood vessels damage. That leads to clotting, both microclotting and in some cases, large clots. There's been, you know, you hear about, especially in the places with large numbers of cases, these cases of young people having crazy strokes with no other risk factors and not even knowing they had COVID but the endothelial damage happened and they have a stroke or big pulmonary emboli or cardiac events, um, likely related to the damage of the lining of the vessels. So there's been a lot of talk about how to deal with that. Um, That's not entirely clear, but we normally, if someone has a big blood clot to the lungs, we put them on blood thinners and you help either both stabilize and dissolve that clot. The question is, in COVID where more often it's all these micro blood vessel, blood clots, um, whether the blood thinners are the right thing to do or anytime anyone's in the hospital and they're not moving around much, they increase their risk of blood clots as well. And so there's, there's the prophylactic dose of blood thinners that are used in every hospitalized patient as long as it's safe for that particular patient. And then there's the treatment dose, which is what you give someone with a heart attack or a pulmonary embolus. And so there's still a lot of debate as to who you treat with treatment dose and who you treat with the um, prophylactic dose. But that's another issue that's been being sorted out. And then there's the recognition that both directly and indirectly, COVID is affecting um, heart, kidneys, liver. And, you know, in some ways, that's not that strange. You know, flu does that too. A lot of these other viruses will do that. just this seems to do it with more regularity and the sick patients are a really difficult balancing act of their hearts not functioning well their their lungs aren't functioning well their kidneys aren't functioning well their liver isn't functioning well and you know you kind of need the heart to circulate the blood
0: mm-hmm.
1: you need the lungs to be getting oxygen in it you need the kidneys to be cleaning it and same with the liver and that includes all the meds that we're putting into these people and so it, it's a uh, the sick COVID patients are uh, quite a balancing act for the ICU doctors that end up taking care of the really sick ones.
0: It kind of sounds like the balancing act is similar in certain ways to the move away from intubation. Because one thing that I wrote down as you were talking about intubation was it kind of gets everything, all of your bodily functions out of sync.
1: Yeah, it really does. You know, any, any time, we take over a bodily function um, that cascades into having to manage everything else, you know. So, not only are you managing someone's oxygen level when you intubate someone, you're also managing their pH, their acid base balance, because um, we manage that with our lungs because we blow off carbon dioxide, which is sort of the acidifying element in our blood. And at the same time, our kidneys are managing the bicarbonate which is the, the base and, you know, one of the bases. And uh, we have a body with an amazing buffer ability, but you need the kidneys and the lungs to be doing this. And so if we assume that role, and then somebody's kidneys get sick, which happens quite often with ICU level patients and in COVID too, I mean, you can have patients that are intubated on renal replacement therapy or dialysis. And then their livers aren't functioning well. And so you're having other metabolites building up that, yeah. So that, that cascade is, is, uh, is really significant and is a balancing act that ICU doctors are managing all the time. But this is a cohort that is quite often really sick and where that balancing act, it it can be really difficult.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that the quarantine was necessary for hospitals to prepare to deal with COVID?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially as this is the way this is manifest you know, nationwide and worldwide, the competition over PPE is still ongoing. And the production wasn't at the level that it needed to be initially. Um, and the federal response to this has unfortunately been completely horrible and mismanaged, or even, I mean, it's been just absent in some ways. And so the government infrastructure that's supposed to manage these things during a time like this at a federal level didn't exist. The states are trying to figure it out. Hospital systems, you know, say Providence, St. Joe's is across the entire West Coast and into Montana and Texas and a little bit New Mexico. And so they're trying to manage PPE across multiple states. And where hotspots are and where they're not, um, and distribute it. And, you know, the native system, hospital system is doing the same thing. And the state's trying to do this without much assistance from the feds. And uh if we had had a big, I mean, just look at the places that had a big caseload early on, you know, it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. It just did not go well. You know, outcomes, you hear about mortality rates of 50, 80%, and that's, of of the hospitalized patients and that's horrible Mm -hmm. um and definitely of the icu level patients and when you're able to give appropriate care and you have a manageable number of patients then the outcomes are probably more and so patients that are just from the data i've seen across our system which is pretty broad and not reflective of areas that never got totally overwhelmed um early on, the mortality of the patients that came in on the sicker side. So not like the less sick hospitalized patients, but the sicker end ones, the mortality was in the 50 plus percent range, but not like the 70, 80, like you saw in Italy and New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, well, I mean, the last data I saw was more April. So I'm sure it's even better than this now, but, but it's still really bad, right? Like to come in sick with COVID, but then that improved in April to more like the mid thirties, I mean that means one out of one in three of these patients that are sicker level are going to die. That's really bad. I mean, when, you know, when you look at regular sepsis patients, so people with overwhelming infection of all levels of overwhelming infection, but where you're seeing a systemic response, so pneumonia, bad urinary tract infections, bad cellulitis, um, bacteria in the blood from a heart valve infection like the IV drug users get a lot, things like that. I mean, the mortality of the full spectrum of sepsis normally is in the 8 to 10% range. And, and certainly that ICU level cohort of sepsis is a lot higher. That's more like 30 But um, COVID, when you look at that, when they're meeting sepsis criteria across that whole spectrum, that mortality is three times that. And that's crazy. That's mm-hmm. bad. So, yeah, to be able to ramp up, and develop systems, you know, rearrange the ER so that we can try to cohort those patients um, and keep both providers and patients safe, I think that all of that was really necessary. And in some ways, I feel like perhaps we were too successful here um, because people never saw a bad wave come through. And I think that's great that we never had that, but, um, I think that's a little bit the complacency and the impatience now It's like somehow that can't happen here, but it can,
0: because they didn't see it
1: because they didn't see it, you know, that's somewhere else. And we, you know, we're this special place. I mean, we are in a special place and we are isolated in our own way from the rest of the U S and we're, you know, we love to say that we're not, you know, those urban centers, but the disease is the same. Mm -hmm. And If you have out-of-control spread, those things, you know, it's not just urban centers that are getting overwhelmed. You know, Arizona has a huge rural population, and and there are rural rural places that aren't doing well.
0: Mm -hmm. So are you seeing COVID patients coming into the hospital through the ER?
1: Yeah, I don't know how many I've actually seen, because I haven't had any rapid positives. And, and then we do a lot of state sendouts as well. So mm-hmm. I actually don't really know. Um, but, you know, as a group we are and, you know, I'll be on shift and the other person will have one and we'll be talking about management and things like that. So, um, yeah, I've been a little bit of a white cloud with myself. Not, not that I haven't seen a ton of sick patients lately, but.
0: No COVID patients.
1: I don't know if I have or I haven't, which is kind of crazy. And then there's some of us where it's been confirmed that they've seen a ton of them. Mm -hmm. it's really kind of wild. It's just, it's the way the ER works. You have like these themes and these things that seem to chase you as an individual and that it's always changing. And then, you know, not that any of us are super suspicious or anything, but you drive to work thinking about something you haven't done in a while. And all of a sudden it's there.
0: Yeah, that's eerie. I feel like the, the ER or the hospital in general tends to prove those, those little theories or those little conspiracies, like um, everybody that I've ever talked to at the hospital really believes in the effects of a full moon.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> and then you think it and it will, it will come. Mm-hmm. Or say it and it will come. Anytime it's quiet in the ER and someone says, it's quiet. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, dude. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: you did it. You screwed <laughs> you us it. all. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so um, uh, I don't know how many I've managed. It's funny.
0: So the ones that you have heard of, the COVID patients that you have heard of, are they coming in because they think they have COVID or are they coming in because of something else and then finding out that they have COVID?
1: Um, In general, they're coming in because of symptoms from COVID. Um, And some of them aren't that sick, you know, and are like, the the run-of-the-mill, I mean, they don't feel good for sure, but the flu kind of patient who doesn't feel good and is doing well, and they want to be tested uh, to the middle of the road where, you know, with some fluids and Tylenol and um, they're sick enough that you're gonna run some lab tests and make sure kidneys, liver, blood counts and stuff are all okay. Chest x-rays, okay. Um, they'll be good enough to go home. And then the ones that aren't maintaining an oxygen level that's close enough to normal to go home. Uh, and then to the ones where they're showing up struggling. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that for sure. Like, you know, that's not a huge amount for us, but that it's it's enough. Um, the people coming in, there's been a, a few that have been, unfortunately, like crazy sick the minute they hit the door. Um, the, with the way that COVID works, you know, it seems that people are moderately sick, six, eight days, and then they either start getting better or they take a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the people that are taking the turn are getting to you early in that turn and not after they've really cratered because, yeah. And so we're seeing all levels of that. Uh, and we're definitely seeing more in the last week like that, really that tone you know, I worked respiratory tract one of those days, and and then I was working all week and talking to the providers that were in respiratory tract the other days. That that tone really changed last week.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you know about how people in Alaska are getting COVID?
1: Yeah, you know, I wish I knew more. I mean, that's where I think the state's trying to do a pretty good job with their data, but I I, I do wish there was more data out there about where the transmission is happening so i'm a little bit limited to the same stuff that you are like what i'm seeing in the news and then Mm -hmm. you know i've been hearing a little bit more than that um there's definitely people that are traveling you know both outside travelers coming here to visit and having it and there are definitely Alaskans that have gone outside and come back either asymptomatic and getting in. It's getting found on the screening, but also coming back and getting sick after they get home. There have been people that tested negative the first time and positive and then got sick after that. They picked it up probably during their travel um, or pretty close to their travel. And so there have been plenty of cases of negative that first screening either 72 hours before returning or at the airport and then positive on their second. So if I can encourage people to please follow the mandate, I would like to encourage them to do it. I mean, most of the doctor groups are following that as well. The essential worker thing doesn't mean that you can automatically opt out of that. You have to file a plan with the state and the Alaska State Medical Association put out a letter to all doctors in Alaska that the expectation is that you will follow that mandate and my group specifically is following that mandate and most of the groups that i know of are um, there are some that aren't um so even if people are essential workers i I definitely have to encourage them to please follow that mandate because we are seeing cases where people are picking it up while they're traveling and then they're spreading it when they're here Mm
0: -hmm.
1: there is definitely large group settings you know the the mayor put out that list of bars, but, um, bars, music events, that was part of what happened in Seward, um, parties. I mean, all those things you think would, any, any, basically. And and then there's one interesting thing. I was, I was talking to Ann Zink the other day and, uh, she mentioned uh, lounges at work, right? Because, um, and that includes, uh, medical settings. Um, but that's where you let your guard down when you're out interacting with customers or for us with patients, we're all, we've got our PPE on, we're, you know, giving each other some space cause there is more space. And then you go back to the lounge to dictate some charts and like my physician lounge is tiny. You put two other people in there and we are definitely no longer distant, physical distancing. So, um, Lounges at work are a place that have been identified as a common place of spread. Um, all those places where you let your guard down. And then, you know, for a lot of the community, their social bubbles aren't that small, or they're a really big family, and you can't, you know, as long as some people are working and, and involved in some activities, you have a pretty extended social bubble just by virtue of the fact of numbers. And... um so it's spreading in those settings because it's the people that we do let our guard down around. So it's, a, it's all of that. But the bigger events are any sort of business or setting where people can't maintain distance. And parties and bars and those sorts of things seem to be a factor for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's all across the community. There's not like a part of our community that doesn't have it.
0: Meaning that there's not just a specific part of the community that is gravitating toward these gatherings.
1: Right. You know, I mean, it's, there's an age group that's gathering more, mm-hmm. but you know, those people go home to households that are sometimes multi-generational households and it spreads. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're seeing this delayed, you know, at first, yeah, it was as the governors point out numerous times, like a lot of the spread lately has been in the younger demographic. And so we don't see as many sick people from it. But um, that creeps its way into other age groups, because they don't live in a vacuum.
0: Which is scary, because you wonder if younger generations are getting the message, or if we are, um, as you know, media outlets, or hospitals putting out press releases, like, are we doing it in a way that is you know reaching them with the right message in the right way
1: and and we're i mean we we are human we are social beings mm-hmm. and i think a lot of us are and a lot of the younger folks are they know what they should be doing but you know peer pressure is stronger than than, than ever or just you know we're going with the flow um i mean i that's where I think that balance is between mandates and just education. Cause we're human. Like we want to be around people. And at that age, you want to be around kind of most people want to be around kind of bigger groups and more socially active. And that's just a fun part of life. And I, I mean, i remember, I went to a ton of music when I was younger. I loved it. Um, I still love going to music.
0: Do you think that you would, you would have listened, to the warnings and the precautions if this was happening when you were younger?
1: Right, I have no idea. I, you know, I wasn't in the medical world then. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, I mean, as a provider, we, we see how hard it is for that age group to sort of behave in a both community space in their head, but also even in a self-preservation space. Like the classic thing in that age group is the type one diabetic, who either it's new onset or they've had it since childhood you know younger in childhood and they want to be doing all the things their friends are doing and they have this disease that means that they have to put a ton of energy into being careful about what they eat and what they drink and how much they have and monitoring their blood sugar and it is so hard for folks that age to do a good job of balancing the social and the, you know, learning about the world and experiencing the things they want to experience and take care of themselves with uh, any sort of extra added burden, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like diabetes. It's so classic to see people have a really, really hard time with management of something that they know and are being educated on, that the blood sugar control they have in their 20s is gonna totally affect whether they have kidneys or lower legs or, you know, other organ damage in their 40s -hmm. but it's so hard to do it it's just that's where how our brain is wired so I, i have no idea i think and so that's where i think that you know politicians i think have to have the guts to be looking at the metrics and be like yeah we can educate as much as we want but we have we have to be we have to make the adult decisions now you know that's what they're that's what they're paid for really
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that it, in a lot of ways, has come to that. You know, we can, as the adults in society, can tell youth, uh, our kids, or, you know, the youth that we're around, we can tell them the, the precautions that need to be taken. But there's no telling whether they're actually going to listen or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair to the younger folks in our community, there are plenty of older people who aren't listening either.
0: For so, sure, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and some of them like to make a lot of noise on the internet. Um, but uh, I mean, just having a community-based perspective on an invisible thing that's getting people sick that you don't even know if you have it sometimes, and you're spreading without even knowing. I mean, the complexity, that is just—that is a lot to ask of a human being.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like something from a sci-fi novel. I mean, I, I always kind of come back to, um, you know, like a zombie outbreak. You know, without without belittling COVID, because I'm not trying to do that, I think of something like a zombie outbreak, right? That's a bite. Or that is, you know, whatever way that you get that infection transmitted. And it is obvious that you have that thing, right? But if it wasn't obvious, right, if you're like this... I don't know, non-symptomatic zombie, right? And you're infecting all these other people with it that can all of a sudden become symptomatic. That That's a scary thought.
1: Yeah, totally. It's totally insidious. Mm-hmm. And before we run out of time though, can we talk metrics a little bit and why it is really important that people take it seriously? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I watched the press conference last night
0: or I watched about half of it. The press conference on?
1: Uh, that uh, On Facebook Live, I think, that um, uh, the governor, Ann Zink, and Joe McLaughlin did. Okay. And uh, it was interesting to me uh, because I felt like there was very much a focus on what our numbers are right this second and very little focus on what our trend is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite understand that. So there was a lot of talk about how Alaska's numbers are some of the best in the country, which I do have to say is nice and everything, but, you know, our country is doing horribly. Like we are, yeah. you know, in the developed world, we, we are a laughingstock right now and with good reason. So um, the comparison was a, a little funny, but um, at the same time, yes, you know, we don't have a huge burden of disease right now we don't have a huge number of hospitalizations right now our our positivity rate on our tests it's a little bit comparing apples to oranges when we compare to other places because we are doing a heck of a lot more asymptomatic screening between the north slope and all the fisheries workers and all the people coming through the airport Mm -hmm. so i mean comparing our numbers to other places isn't quite fair because our per capita testing is much higher Um, and so they were talking about all these metrics but there was very little focus on the trends. I did appreciate that the governor is being a lot more forward about encouraging people to wear masks. And I totally appreciate what Mayor Berkowitz did. I I think he's been willing to do the right thing uh, more often. And I do think that they're all communicating nicely to each other, which I do like that. That's not always the case in the politics in the US. So I think that Dunleavy and Berkowitz are showing each other respect that's really helping our community. Though Kevin Clarkson, when he challenged the Muni on state workers wearing, wearing masks, I thought was completely lame, because that, that messes with that response, you know, response support to local areas that have more outbreak than others. Um, and masks aren't magic, but they do help. I mean that's pretty clear. But what was, what was totally missing was the trend. And so our case positivity rate, when we were doing well was like 0.5 percent and you know over the last few weeks we're creeping up and up and up and we're we've we've essentially almost tripled it like today i think it was 1.83 or yesterday was and um so yeah it's 1.83 that's good we're not florida but this trend isn't good and our hospitalizations went from single digits to 30 statewide at one point last week and right now in the muni it's uh it was like 21 or 22 yesterday or maybe 17 yesterday but we've been in the teen, high teens to 20s in the muni um and and that's also a trend and we've all seen the curve in the paper every day with you know what's happening with our daily cases
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um i think people have to be hugely aware that if if they want school to be in person and as a parent, I, I really, really want school to be in person. <laughs> like, <you know>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not in quarantine anymore, but we're all in the same house. Um, and we need that break. And my kids need that social interaction and they need those teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the online thing, even if you have a kid who's self directed enough to do it, it's not the same. Um, and if we want school sports and if we want these sports programs that our kids are involved in and if we want, you know, any hope of some like music at some point or um, but if we want gyms to be able to be open even with social distancing if we want any of these things to continue at a reasonable level and then from a healthcare perspective if we want elective procedures and when i say elective procedures i mean like colonoscopies but coronary bypass that's not an emergency coronary bypass you know general heart care general cancer care and cancer screening Regular old cancer type surgeries, um, ortho surgeries, knee replacements, hip replacements, torn ligament repair—you know all these things that are we call them elective procedures—but they're not they are not like a chin lift. They're like essential parts of maintaining the health of our community,
0: mm-hmm. the quality of life,
1: the quality of life, and and when we lose those, you know, yeah, we're maybe taking care of COVID patients, but we are losing other patients. And that definitely happened during the full shutdown. And the first thing that's gonna go, if the COVID numbers get, and really they don't have to get much worse than they are right now. um, The first thing that's gonna go is, is access to elective care. And so we absolutely don't want to be in a position where COVID is more than just a simmering thing. Because we're going to lose things that we really, really care about, and are also hugely important to our community's health. And um, the healthcare in America is a for-profit model, even even when you're talking nonprofit hospitals. And that model, private healthcare, runs on the model of being close to capacity at all times, because that's how you pay for your staff and your medicine and your OR and your ER that's ready to take care of everything. Like we don't have surge capacity built into our healthcare system. So the minute that COVID starts to take too much of a proportion and, and the thing that is I think not really clear to the population here is that that's not much more than where it's at right now we start to lose that ability to do all those other things that help us be at capacity and help keep us healthy so um, this trend is i think way more concerning than what those press conferences reflect and it won't take much further along this trend to start to lose stuff whether or not the state acts or not and so that's where i'm a little bit confused that there isn't some official pulling back from lack of mandates on group size limitation capacity for bars and whether or not we even have music events capacity i mean and it's not just bars it's any place there's a lot of people sitting next to each other so you know nobody wants to say it but you know houses of worship or a big part of it you know I, I don't know how much transmission we've had in alaska here and and i don't know the models that they've reopened on maybe a lot of them have been i hope that a lot of them have been really responsible and taking care of their parishioners and and making sure that people have space. And I know that, you know, that I know that publicly some have been doing that, but any space where people are close to each other for a long period of time is a dangerous space right now.
0: For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alkota Beats.